afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on this week's show, dogs, hurricanes, and sleep apnea. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Cynthia Gong, who will talk about nuclear science. Also, we'll find out why the sunset is so red. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Uh, alive and well. <laughs> it's always good to be alive and well, especially when the middle of December rolls around. Yes. <laughs> I can I can already feel the Christmas spirit creeping up upon me. Oh, I've been feeling that since uh, August, actually. <laughs> I feel it all year round. <laughs> all how, year? How can you How can you not feel the Christmas spirit all year round? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't wait for Jesus and his reindeers to show up. <laughs> Actually, it's kind of converse because now I'm feeling like the August spirit oh. So as well. <laughs> Here's a personal question. Do you use lubrication? Uh, well, you know, like when you're cooking up a storm <laughs> of sorts? <laughs> um, yes, I, I try and use it uh, just generally to help me slide into my clothes. Yeah, oh. <laughs> you got a, a dry skin, I guess. Yeah, huh? Well, you know, leather it doesn't really, you know, get into very easily, <laughs> especially when you're not wearing underwear. <laughs> There you go. It's not a second skin. <laughs> so it turns out hurricanes actually uh, need lubrication to help them form and to maintain their uh, their form. Really? So how do you actually lubricate a hurricane? Uh, so that's the question that uh, some scientists here at uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and uh, here on campus at UC Berkeley have been asking. It turns out the ocean sprays... The uh, the droplets that are formed by the cresting waves actually reduce the uh, friction between the air and the ocean by a order, by a factor of a thousand. Really? Yes. Okay, so just like the uh, I guess that interface somehow. Right. So at that interface, you actually have these sprays which are give you about twenty micron uh, particles, and those actually uh, help to uh, accelerate the uh, the wind um, vortex forming process. Ah, I always love the wind vortex forming process. <laughs> Especially when lubricated. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And, in fact, this means that winds are free to accelerate as much as eight times faster than they would in regular um, turbulent air. So, actually, when a hurricane forms, at the beginning, you would expect uh, the winds to be kind of random. Actually, a turbulent kind of a, um, an effect where you have low pressures here and there and you have winds in all sorts of different directions. But when you have these sprays at the same time, they seem to accelerate whatever uh, momentum would, was in a slightly more dominant uh, wind, and that somehow carries through and forms this super vortex. Oh, well, hopefully that super vortex will go and fight crime somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we've been well, having so like many more hurricanes. You know? huh? yeah. <laughs> they cite a very interesting um, practice that they had in ancient times. Sailors carried oil on their vessels, and they would pour it on waves to calm a rising storm. Mm. They speculate is that the 
oil prevented the formation of these droplets and so uh, would prevent the storms from forming. Oh, very cool. Well, uh, yeah, I guess the ancient mariners knew best, except don't kill an albatross. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a very interesting work uh, carried by uh, Berenblatt, Chorin, and the Prostokitian, and it was in our uh, published in our favorite journal. Not the proceedings. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's all about turbulence. <laughs> and lubrication and penis. Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. All right, well, I'll add to our hurricane knowledge uh, on this week's episode. <laughs> Man, cooking up a storm. <laughs> you know what better? This, is, this should be like the hurricane show. Yeah. We'll dedicate this show to hurricanes everywhere. How many hurricanes have we had this year? <laughs> like a lot, uh, a right? Lot. Yeah, well, it seems like every year. And uh, apparently, I guess they keep growing. And uh, I think that they're, they're talking that that's because of the global warming cycle might be increasing the uh, uh, levels of hurricanes that are forming. Maybe one day on, we'll experience something in the Pacific, at least on the West Coast here. Yeah, well, I, I guess that's when the rest of the East Coast falls off and, <laughs> and that would become both coasts. Hurricanes apparently also can whip up very huge waves. Oh, really? Yes, apparently 40 meters high. 20 meters high. That's taller than a lot of buildings, actually. It's taller than a lot of ships as well. <laughs> and uh, according to Daniel Wang and his colleagues at the Naval Research Laboratory in Mississippi, they say that these waves could actually explain the disappearance of ships at sea. Wow. So you mean entire ships being swallowed by these like 40 foot, 40 mm. meter waves? Yeah. And they, in fact, they say that it's uh, this probably underestimates how big these waves can get uh-huh. because they were monitoring during Hurricane Ivan, which was swirling around last September. Right. And uh, what they did is, I mean, they looked and they. Could couldn't measure in the middle of the storm, but they can measure just outside of it. So presumably in the mid- middle of the storm, much higher than 40 meters. Wow. So this is, I mean, the first incident of seeing these kind of huge waves at sea. In fact, before that, they've only seen uh, these waves, you know, tsunami type waves right. when, you know, they hit like shallow waters. But to have it like whip up just in the middle of the sea, uh-huh. that's quite something. So apparently they're saying these aren't, uh, you know, unusual circumstances. And uh, according to Ju Moon, a oceanographer at the University of Rhode Island, she says this might actually be important because uh, these waves might become much more common and uh, especially as uh, uh, you know climate changes might increase the frequency of uh, hurricanes. Well, that means like the Mongols won't be invading us anytime soon, huh? Well, I I, I don't know. It'd be tough uh, tough ride. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that uh, what um, sort of uh, warded them off when they tried to invade Japan or something? Like they had these huge uh, tsunami or uh, typhoon waves that basically obliterated the entire Mongolian army. Ah, so nature was on the side. <laughs> yes. Well, okay, so very fascinating work. And this was actually published in a recent edition of Science. So, Charles, how do you plan to die? Uh, hopefully quickly and in my sleep. <laughs> oh, really? You don't want to be, like, laughing like mad and, like, just completely uh, euphorious? <laughs> that would be good, too, I think. Yeah, I think uh, skydiving while uh, making love <laughs> and on cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's really high. <laughs> well, it's, that's the way I think I, I got to... It, it'll be tough, but I'll do my best there. So, actually, uh, I, I guess your, your first choice, sleep, may be a more likely uh, candidate, though. <laughs> okay. And it turns out, um, a research at UCLA suggests that there's actually a, a, I guess, a physiological reason why many people die in their sleep. Mm. It's uh, due to um, cumulative, um, I guess, uh, deterioration of the pre-Bottinger's complex in the uh, brainstem. Oh, that controls, like, rhythms of uh, breathing, right? Right. What he's shown with, with rats is that um, if you destroy this uh, area or 
accelerates its aging process, what you'll see is the many of these rats will actually die in their sleep because mm. they lose uh, command of their sleeping abilities. Right, and so basically they suffocate to death while they're sleeping. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess also known as sleep apnea, but right. this is not the, uh, the commonly known one where you, uh, you just have an obstruction in your throat, but this is just simply your nerves just don't give off the signals anymore. Right, right. He was saying for a lot of people who, who actually die in their sleep, they've already had, um, they're either ill or they're very weak, so this uh, natural deterioration uh, sort of accelerates the process of actually... Right, they're uh, just more uh, susceptible to uh, experiencing the effects of a degenerated pre-Botzinger complex. Right, and yeah. uh, in, you know, in many elderly people, they already have uh, some deterioration of the pre-Botzinger complex. Oh, okay, very good. Well, I always wanted to go out like uh, James T. Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> As a hero? Well, <laughs> killed by Randy McDowell, I think. That's, uh-huh. that's my goal. <laughs> I thought there was a, a sequel uh, in which he comes back alive. but uh, Is that right? Well, possibly. Some <laughs> some bad piece of fan fiction somewhere, I think. <laughs> Actually, I heard it was written by William Shatter himself. <laughs> Again, that's some bad piece of fan fiction. So, <laughs> so anyways, uh, this was reported in a recent edition of Nature Neuroscience. Okay, Frank, what number am I thinking of? Uh, 3.14159, uh, well, you know what I mean. Uh, right, 265358979. Of course. <laughs> Stop showing off. <laughs> I thought everyone knew pi, right? <laughs> so actually, uh, this is actually a very important thing because being able to tell that somebody else actually has different thoughts than your own uh, sort of is what a lot of uh, people are, or scientists think of as distinguishing humans from animals. What, dolphins all think alike then? <laughs> well, uh, not necessarily think alike, but they don't realize that other members of their species have different thoughts than their own. Huh. It's, so, it's a so-called theory of mind. So we're not a collective as much <laughs> as we really want to think, huh? Uh, not like the Borg, no. <laughs> um, and this is actually very inter- uh, interesting because it's critical for basically our social development and, and actually our survival. Right. Um, so actually, the, this is quite fascinating, but it's not clear whether animals actually also have a theory of mind. How about a monkeys? Or even, well, even monkeys or apes, it's not even been shown there. So it's actually f- fascinating because uh, Alexander Horowitz, an animal cognition researcher at Barnard College in New York City, she basically looked at this in dogs mm-hmm. to see whether or not they demonstrated the traits of perhaps having a theory of mind. And so what she did, she followed these dogs around, videotaped them, and apparently uh, when dogs are playing... They sort of uh, give off these cues when they want to get the other person's, uh, the dog's attention. Right. And uh, the, le- the intensity of the cue basically varies based on how much the other dog is distracted. So if one dog is more distracted, the other dog will make a louder uh, sort of cue to try to get attention. Well, so she basically uh, thinks that this indicates that the one dog has a, an idea that the other dog is more or less distracted, uh-huh. and thus a theory of mind, a state of mind of the other dog. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting conjecture to be made from that. Right. Um, one, I think one could actually also argue that, uh, you know, the, the dogs just might have a simple stimulus relationship <laughs> as well. But uh, that's what these animal cognition guys do. Hmm. Videotape dogs. <laughs> well, on the internet, you can't tell if the other person's a dog, though. <laughs> Are you talking to a lot of dogs on the internet nowadays? Oh, you know, they're mildly entertaining. <laughs> Uh, it's really more entertaining than some of the uh, people you meet online. <laughs> and intelligent, too. <laughs> uh, woof. All right. Well, so anyway, here's a very fascinating piece of work, and it was uh, uh, presented in a recent edition of uh, Science. 
And that's all for our look at current developments in the world of science and technology. This is Berkeley Grokshire listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Dr. Cynthia Gang joins us to talk about nuclear chemistry. So stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Rocks. When we hear the word nuclear, for many of us, we conjure images of mass destruction. But nuclear science is actually a critical part of many disciplines, including medicine and uh, environmental remediation. Joining us today is our very special guest, Dr. Cynthia Gong, postdoctoral researcher at University of Nevada at Las Vegas, and she was previously a graduate researcher here at UC Berkeley. Dr. Gong, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, maybe you can clarify something. Chemistry is often defined as bonds, electrons, and the uh, the properties of these orbitals. And nuclear refers to uh, neutrons and protons within these atoms. Isn't nuclear chemistry an oxymoron then? An oxymoron because it doesn't have anything to do with electrons. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't think so. Um, well, nu- it's called nuclear chemistry mainly because you're interacting heavy atoms such as uranium and neptunium and the actinides. And the reason that they're interesting, of course, are the F elements. So an F element is, is an extremely complicated chemistry that they do because they have seven different orbitals. But also because at around nuclear mass of about 72, around gold, the electrons around the, the atoms start accelerating so fast that they actually become relativistic. And this relativity of the electrons in the orbitals actually affects their chemistry. So if you were to look at the periodic table, you would see that the actinides, or the uh, elements we deal with when we talk about nuclear chemistry, are, are right under the lanthanides because of the F elements. However, they behave extremely differently from the, the lanthanides. They're not as predictable as you would expect. And that's because of this relativity, the relativistic nature of these electrons. And in fact, um, in the field, we normally call it radiochemistry, and that is a much more accurate term. It reflects that we're dealing with the chemistry of radioactive elements. For many of these compounds, these uh heavy uh, atoms, it's often very difficult to produce uh, a sizable quantity of them, but in the cases that we do, what kind of properties uh, do we see? Are they just uh, metals or uh, anything special? Metals? Well, uh, of course, the most abundant uh, radioactive material that we deal with is uranium, because that can be found in the Earth's crust. The reason that it's the most abundant and the easiest to work with from that kind of point, that, that point of view, is that it has an extremely long Mm half-life. So if you use the isotope uranium-238 or depleted uranium, it it has a half-life on the order of billions of years. So the Earth is only several billion years old, so it hasn't all decayed yet. Anything with a half-life much shorter than that, on the order of hundreds of millions of years, for instance, is already decayed. So um, there's plenty of uranium to work with, but anything with a shorter half-life has to be man-made. Or um, some of it is... is, uh, generated in the atmosphere by the sun's rays and mm-hmm. nuclear reactions in the atmosphere or um, falls to us from space. But, but in general, we use man-made materials. Let's talk a little bit about um, the research you carried out while you were still at Berkeley. Um, you were dealing with bacteria and how they could aggregate radioactive compounds in the environment. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? 
Sure. Well, first of all, I should mention that it wasn't really an aggregation. Bacteria in general are made with a, or they make themselves with a negatively charged surface or some sort of surface protection. They are like you and me in that they make themselves skins, and the the skin but then protects them from the outside um, environment. Now, bacteria are not like us in that they have to live in much harsher places. Right. So they'll be suspended in water or absorbed to a rock. And in those types of environments, there's a lot more relatively toxins and so forth that can that can be interacting and can be hitting these bacteria. So a lot of them, especially the ones found in soils, have highly negatively charged surfaces or polysaccharide surfaces. And what these do are they act as barriers and they prevent the cell from accidentally uptaking material that is harmful to it. Um, just by osmosis mm-hmm. or diffusion, and of course they have the membrane as well. Um, the particular bacteria that I, were, that I was using were called Dinococcus radiodurans, and as you can probably guess by the name, they can withstand extremely large doses of ionizing radiation. By ionizing, I mean radiation that's capable of knocking an electron out of its orbit. So typically that's called gamma rays. We, we consider gamma rays beta, so high energy beta, and alpha particles as ionizing radiation. So where are these bacteria found? Are they found like uh, close to the um, mantle of the Earth where there is some radi- radioactivity? Or? Um, Dinococcus is actually found fairly ubiquitously. Um, the current theory, and the best theory so far, is that its radio, uh, its resistance, radio resistance is due to, it, it's a secondary effect. What, what the theory is is that it developed a resistance to desiccation. Now, when you desiccate a bacterium, when you dry it out, a lot of th- uh, biochemical changes happen. Mm-hmm. First of all, its DNA starts breaking. It forms free radicals. It can't repair itself because its uh, proteins are no longer dissolved or no, no longer solubilized. The structures of it start to break down. Then when you rehydrate the bacterium, everything's broken and it just doesn't put itself back together. Dinococcus, on the other hand, has these mechanisms. It has repair uh, enzymes that are able to work under very harsh conditions. It has extremely stable structure. It has a very high uh, GC content, um, guanine cytosine content in its in its DNA. Mm-hmm. And the difference between GC and AT is that GC pairs are generally much more stable because they have three hydrogen bonds rather than the two hydrogen bonds of AT. Mm-hmm. So they're a little bit harder to break. And it has multiple copies of its chromosome. And what that does is it enables to repair itself because any part of the chromosome that's broken, it's unlikely that it's going to be broken in all the copies. And so it has an intact copy to use as a template and rebuild an entire chromosome the way it was before. And so all of these mechanisms that are in place for resisting um, desiccation damage can also be used to repair radiation damage. In terms of the radiation dosage that these uh, bacteria can withstand, uh, how does it compare to uh, other uh, living organisms, for example, uh, humans or cockroaches? <laughs> They're on a completely different scale, in fact. Uh, the research I did uh, with the Dinococcus strain that's available through the American Type Culture Collection, or ATCC, is called Dinococcus radiodurans strain R1. It's one of the first ones that are found, but there are several other strains of the same uh, species, Dinococcus radiodurans. The genus Dinococcus has at least four species that are known. There's uh, Geothermalis, which is also commonly used. And the reason that people use the Geothermalis and the radiodurans is that they are amenable to genetic manipulation, Mm -hmm. which means that we can take these bacteria, we can drop in plasmids or alter the, the genome, the chromosome, all four copies, and get it to um, produce proteins and functionalities that it doesn't naturally produce. 
So uh, when we take this uh, Dinococcus and we irradiate it, its genetic resistance is going to be dependent on, on A, what strain are you using, and B, how have you treated that strain? So there have been studies that were done when it was first discovered back in the 60s where they tried to induce a sort of hormesis effect. Now, hormesis is the theory that if you have low doses of radiation, you can sort of immunize yourself against radiation damage, mm -hmm. which means that it's sort of like an inoculation where you inject yourself with a weakened or a dead virus and you have an immune system build up. And then when you actually encounter the full virus, you already have your, your defenses in place. Uh -huh. Hormesis is the same theory with if you irradiate yourself with low doses that are, are not exactly harmful, or not, definitely non-lethal, uh -huh. then your body learns to, to develop a resistance. Right. Uh, this theory in humans is, is widely contested, and no one knows really if it's right. Um, the current the American and I think worldwide uh, regulations assume that there is no threshold, that there is no hormesis, there is no safe amount of radiation you can be exposed to. So I shouldn't be sucking up radon, huh? <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, of course, your, your amount of radiation you're exposed to depends on where you live. I mean, if you live right next to Chernobyl, you're going to get a lot more radiation than if you lived in Berkeley, mm -hmm. um, the nuclear-free zone, of course. <laughs> but um, so Dinococcus has these, these mechanisms as well. Uh, and it can ha you can induce these radiation repair systems. Now, I'm not going to say this applies to humans. I, in fact, emphatically deny that I'm saying that this applies to humans because they're a much more complicated system. But on the bacterial level, you can induce the, the production of these DNA repair genes. And then when you expose it to radiation, it's, it's a mechanism of defense is already in place, and it can withstand a much higher dose. So if... Um, if you take these studies where the Dinococcus were exposed to oxidating compounds, uh, which cause oxidative damage of DNA, which is one type of, of, of damage done by radiation, a main type, in fact, then uh, you expose it to these low doses, grow it up, and then irradiate them. Uh, there have been reports of, with, of doses withstood up to 20,000 kilogray, excuse me, 20,000 gray. And a gray is one joule of energy absorbed per kilogram of mass. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Humans, by contrast, would die maybe about six or ten gray. So that's four, four orders of magnitude, from 20,000 to six. It does not take very much in terms of a, a very high a dose to kill a human, but also keep in mind the amount of energy absorbed is going to be different. A bacterium is, is so small, right. and a person is so large that if you keep in mind a joule per kilogram, for humans, that's that's a lot of energy. Uh -huh. For a bacterium, which weighs on the order of a microgram, I mean, that's that's very little energy. So, uh, it's it's not really the same scale. It's very difficult to compare. Right. You know what I mean? If we're comparing dogs to people or or an animal to people, then you might be able to tell. But um, if you want to compare it to something, you might as well compare it to E. coli. Uh -huh. It's a much better comparison. E. coli, of course, is still much much higher than people, but it's also on the order of about a hundred gray. So twenty thousand for for these ultimate Dinococcus and 100 for E. coli. Mm -hmm. When I was at Berkeley and doing experiments with gamma rays using the cobalt-60 source at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, uh -huh. uh, I found that Dinococcus could, could withstand approximately 4,000 to 5,000 gray without any noticeable effects. And just a general lab strain of E. coli would die about 100, maybe 120. Can you tell us a little bit about your current work at uh, University of Nevada? Here in Nevada, we're developing a really top-notch 
radiochemistry program. In the United States right now, uh, radiochemistry has fallen out of favor with science students. And so we're trying to revitalize that with a new center here for radiochemistry. And, we're, and we got some money to spend, and we're trying to attract top-notch minds and scientists here and leaders in the field so that, that A, the, the America does not fall behind in nuclear technologies in the world, which we're in danger of doing, and also to um, just to advance science, to do cutting-edge science outside of the national labs and all of the politics that go along with working in a national lab. In addition, our, our focus is very, very much not on weapons. Mm -hmm. It's much more on environmental technologies, on nuclear fuel cycles, on increasing the yield of energy from each uh, unit of raw nuclear fuel to decrease the amount of waste produced, and waste treatment technologies. Yeah, thanks for joining us to tell us a little bit about nuclear chemistry. Are, are there any uh, last words you'd like to add about yourself or um, our University of Nevada? University of Nevada? Um, UNLV is an up-and-coming place for radiochemistry, and I'm, I'm hoping that you guys will hear good stuff from us coming out soon because we are really accumulating a number of, of uh, equipment, of top-notch equipment. We're building a new facility with up to 40,000. I think the newest estimate is 40,000 square feet uh, just for radiochemistry. But anyone who would be interested in going to graduate school would, would do well to look here into the radiochemistry program. Just make sure that uh, you don't have a gambling problem before you move out to Las Vegas. <laughs> well, Dr. Gong, thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Grogs. Right, thanks, Frank. Yeah, we're just talking to Dr. Cynthia Gong from the University of Nevada. This is Berkeley Grogs you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, the Grogatron 5000. So stay tuned. Well, uh, Dr. Gong has kindly agreed to join us on this week's edition of the Grokotron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. <laughs> the, there are two types of nuclear forces, the strong and the weak. Today's Grokotron 5000 is strong or weak, and here are the following subjects. Subject number one, director of the Manhattan Project, Robert Oppenheimer, strong or weak? Mm, he was a strong man. I think that it took a lot of courage for him and a lot of willpower for him to do what he did. Subject number two, New York Senator Hillary Clinton. <laughs> She's also a strong man. Oh, I'm just kidding. I actually, I think Hillary's gone through... She's a very brilliant woman, and she's uh, really shown that in terms of her politics and in terms of uh, what she's am the ambition that she's displayed, and I admire that. All right, subject number three. The President of the United States, George W. Bush, strong or weak? <laughs> He's so weak, man. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Southern California where uh, I could really say that he was weak. <laughs> He's very weak. 
So dropping those bombs doesn't make him strong. Well, I think it really demonstrates the weakness of his ability to uh, solve problems through diplomacy and mm-hmm. his his weakness in terms of his myopia in, in looking at the appearance of the United States to the rest of the world and the fact that we are a strong country and we are a weak country is ephemeral. Rome was once a strong country and to maintain it you have to have you can't just look at the next two years or the next poll or how in, how much you can enrich yourself and your vice president through various holding companies. That's not what you need to do. You need to be strong and, and look at the world because you are the most powerful country in the world and you have a responsibility just by the nature of being the 800-pound gorilla, to say, okay, I have to balance the needs of the entire world, not just mine. And so the weakness of his diplomacy and of his uh, ability to foresee uh, any effects that his his words and his actions have, not only on, on the United States but on the rest of the world, because he really hasn't seen it within the United States as well, I think, target, to me, make, make him a very weak president. All right, subject number four, uh, celebrity of a different kind, Janet Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't really have any comment about Janet Jackson. Okay, and finally, uh, subject number five, Jedi Master Yoda. Yoda? (laughs) I think he could kick my ass, that's for sure. (laughs) How small he is. (laughs) All right, well, uh, thanks for joining us on this week's Grokotron 5000. (laughs) Thanks, Frank. Okay, now here's Tokokin with the answer to last week's question of the week. Why is the sunset so red? Well, actually, if under the natural and the clean environment, you should not expect such a red sunset, but because of pollutants in the atmosphere, like nitrous oxide, it gives the rays a shade of red-orange, and that is why the sunset is so, so red. Yes, well, you know, we have this Colonel Slevlaw trying to find the great last elephant who holds the treasure. Yes, the great British colonial empire is not dead, but yet here I am traversing through Africa, and, you know, I'm catching down this ooh, malaria. It's a bit of a problem, that. Well, why is it around, and how is sickle cell anemia related to it? Well... If you know the answer, I think you know the answer. You can email us at crocs at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but ooh, your blood just might flow a little better. And that's all for this week's edition of the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at crocs at hotmail.com. For Perfectly Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.